I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounce on its point, wow. Anything to talk about this week? I don't. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am Emma Race. I'm Kate Sear. I'm Lucy Race. This would be Nicole Hayes, and I'm Rana Hussein. Welcome, Rana Hussein, filling in today. No, she's coming pitch. off the bench, pitch hitting. Is that what pitch you're hitting. saying? Yeah. yeah. Pitch so Alicia sometimes is. Um, on the bench today, <laughs> injured. She I think she's groin. an emergency. She's an emergency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she might be seeing other clubs, Ooh. doing a tour <laughs> of the facilities or something like that. Tom Lynch style. Um, but Rana, thank you so much for coming in. For people who are playing along at home, Rana is of course from the Richmond Football Club. Yay! Definitely Ooh. on the rookie list here, though. <laughs> just to be clear. No. Uh, how is how are things down at Richmond at Tigerland? Is it a little different this time? Compared to last year? It is different in a few ways. Um, We've gone through a season like this, or in a different position, I guess, to last year, but we kind of know what's coming. So it's definitely a different feeling. But I feel like there's a different vibe from outside the club. We're not not the underdogs anymore. (laughs) No. I don't feel as much love this year, I have to say. Welcome to Hawthorne Mm. fandom. (laughs) So part of your job, you're in audience, um, you're in fan engagement and diversity is one of the parts, one of the parts of your job. Here's a question for you. When you have (laughs) 100,000 members, does that just make your job even harder or does it make it easier because you've kind of already got them like (laughs) is it just looking after them now I think yeah definitely having a hundred thousand is pretty cool but we do need to look after them make sure we're servicing everybody properly um it's good for me because it means hopefully we've got a larger pool now which means lots of different types of people hopefully so we can start to um look at all that data and see who we've got actually you know in our in our house um but it's tricky because we've got to make sure the messaging's right. And um, I think from my point of view, from a diversity inclusion point of view, you can run the risk of being token and we need to kind of work on that. So I think for us, um, we've got a really, we're really lucky because I work with a lot of Indigenous people at the club um, and me being there as well means that we've got diversity already in the club. So we've got people in the room to kind of bring different points of view already, which is pretty cool. One of the things we saw, we caught up with you over summer at the Midsummer Festival, which Richmond was really um, getting behind and supporting. That's obviously um, a, a choice that you guys have made to kind of align with Midsummer. How has that rolled out over the year that that's become a focus for you guys? Um, it's been pretty amazing. So at the end of last year, we decided to partner with Midsummer because we just felt like we needed to learn. That was sort of the impetus for it. We were kind of like, we have no idea. <laughs> so let's partner with this organisation who are keen to have a sporting team with them and we're going to learn from them. So that's what this year's been, just lots and lots of conversations. Uh, and then looking to next year, kind of step it up. But it's been amazing because when, you know, if we don't know, we consult. That's kind of how we roll at Richmond. Um, and most of the time we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice. <laughs> to hear someone say, I don't know. Like, I feel it's like refreshing. people should say, I don't know more often. Yeah. Don't you reckon? Or, or, yeah. I, imagine if every power group in every structure of society, realising that there was, you know, marginal or people excluded, they started the conversation with, I'd like to learn more about you. Totally. Can you imagine how much better the world would be? That's the question that I kept coming back to whenever um, the issue of trans players in the AFL or AFLW come up, that I go, how, do, how does everyone think that they know everything about this? Why is the first question or the first comment, I don't know the answer to that, mm. but I'm going to go and, yeah, I'm going to go and find it. One of the things we were talking about last week, um, Rana, on the pod was about how 
inclusion is it's very different to just having a diverse group of people and we were talking about the word incorporation and bringing people actually into the body when you've got so many um, areas that you could be you know putting your attention on how do you set your priorities Oh, such a good question. Um, if it were up to me, it'd be everyone here. <laughs> um, that's sort of what I push for every day. Um, look, we do, we, we're a business at the end of the day. Footy is the first and foremost thing that we look at. So everything kind of has to um, come from there. So we do have a business plan. Um, and at Richmond, we're trying, to, we're trying to do depth rather than do everything. Um, we've added a few things. Thanks <laughs> My bosses don't love it that I keep going, and this group, and this group. Um, but we're trying to, every time we do something, just trying to kind of find a really one spot that we can um, kind of drill down on and work really well with. We are so pleased that you're here with us today, mostly because we just like talking to you <laughs> and the sound of your beautiful voice on the podcast. Okay, let's get into it. There were some amazing matches. Um, let's look back, reflect on the round. Okay, well, some of the closest games that we have seen in concurrent, um, like back-to-back, Five I felt six, like yeah. uh, by Saturday night, I felt like mm, I had that, I want to say post-coital <laughs> feeling. <laughs> like, I oh, felt like, no, 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 okay, not that, that, not that, not that, not that. But you know that one you've just had a day at the beach where you've been playing in the waves all day and the waves have invigorated you yeah. and you're just like, that was the best day of my life. And you've life. got your milkshake yes. and you're exhausted on the couch falling asleep. Yes, I felt like that. And it started on Friday night, the Richmond, um, oh. like there's just every game was amazing. No mm. one expected what happened on Sunday to roll out. Um, but some of the closest games, okay, for mine, uh, my highlight, I oh, know you guys go first because like, mine's probably a bit boring, but what were your highlights? I know oh. you're a Buddy fan, but. I was hard. Okay. I went. I went to the Richmond Geelong game with my mum. My mum's a Richmond fan, so that was pretty fantastic to to be at that that game. A close um, finish. Uh, look, there's so many things. It was great to see Alex Johnson come back out of being after being out of football for almost six years. That was a wonderful story. I, I find it hard to go past Buddy because yeah. I am a huge Buddy fan, and that was one of those nights watching that game where it's just you know you know from early on that Buddy's on fire, and it's just a delight to watch him when he's playing that well. Um, that was a real highlight for me. It was a real spectacle. But gee, I mean. As a Hawthorne supporter, I was pretty happy to see. <laughs> but look, I, I must say as well, I, I try to avoid any highlights involving, involving Hawthorne because yeah. we are sometimes accused of being biased. But I have been a huge fan for a long time of Ben Stratton. He is, yeah. in my view, probably in the top three most underrated players in the competition. And he had a blinder on Saturday. Mm. He was the best on ground. And um, it was wonderful to see him get a bit of recognition, actually. Yep. Lucy? Um, I, I just wonder how much better Buddy could have been if he'd done more than five minutes training yeah. last week. I'm yeah. loving all this discussion about how <laughs> he really is quite injured and can't train. So I think five minutes got him that six goals. So it's amazing. do the maths on that. Um, I, Can I just say one thing about Buddy? Yes. How enormous does he look at the SCG? <laughs> like it's quite a small oh. ground. He's like too yeah. big for the ground. Is yeah, he? He's almost too big for the ground. It's like when adults sit on the little chairs yeah. at primary Kinder. school. Yes. It's like Heath in Survivor. Oh, yeah, he's huge. Can I, can I say, though, I have a photo, which I might tweet out. Um, I have a photo that I have with Buddy from maybe 10 years ago or something. And I kid you not, Buddy is sitting on a chair and I am standing up next to him and he's still taller than me. Oh, my uh, God. He's a big man. I need man. to be in that photo. Um, I, for me, it was that McCartan goal mm. for Sydney to win. Just You just had the feeling that something was going to come from that last stoppage. And I didn't expect it would be a goal that was kicked from somebody lying on their side. <laughs> I just, I'm like, goal of the year this year is just beautiful. It should be a th- at <laughs> least a, a three goal. or four oh, way tie, yeah. shouldn't it? You almost feel like they should be spread out. It doesn't yeah. seem fair to have so many great goals in one season. No, I, just, I know. Because they could have won each of them. Like, there's a bunch of them this year that could have won outright totally. if they were spread out. And well, I'm just going to have another little shout out to um, a mark of the year contender, yes. Michael Walters. Mm-hmm. Oh, at the end of that game, that was, and it's been lost, of course, yes. uh, in the story, but that was an awesome mark. He actually took two amazing marks in that game. There was another one where he actually, I don't know, if it, do you call it a mark if your feet don't leave the ground? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Is that still a mark? Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I'm, I'm so used to Mark yeah. and you having to be well, Technically, it's yes, still a mark. Rana's like, is Do she... Do you understand football? Does she know the game of football? No, I meant, sorry, can it still be Mark of the Year if you don't, if your feet don't let... I'm sure. sorry. Okay, I have watched the game before, yeah. I promise. I'll, it's I'll six points for speed. a goal, right? Uh, yes. Last so he took this mark overhead, but it, the ball had already passed behind his head and he back was totally yeah. arched and he plucked it out from behind him. I was like, that's a yoga move. It was amazing. <laughs> Give it a name. Nicole, what come. was yours? It was the Walters method. Yeah. What's your, um, what was your highlight? Well, well I, you picked all the great individual players. So I'm just going to, I just love the idea that right now we have fourth to eighth currently on exactly the same points mm. at literally divided only by percentage, but also even third is GWS is only up because of the draw. And so, and you've got, Ninth and tenth, also on the same point. So, all of those positions are up for grabs. Um, with the Cats and North still in contention, if they can get a, a big enough win, and and so literally every single game for those ten or eight teams is just life and death. So exciting! Isn't it the best? Yeah, and terrifying. <laughs> Rana, highlight. Well, how are we supposed to get anything done? I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're glued to the tally. Uh, look, Richmond Geelong was pretty amazing. I was sitting next to the injured players um, and it was getting so tense. I actually got up and moved because <laughs> I wanted to cheer and scream and be loud and you kind of have to keep it together if you're sitting next to the players. So uh, that Is was that true? Is that like a rule? No, it's not a rule, but you just you just don't want to. You're just kind of like they're already going through something, watching their teammates go through something. So you just want to you just want to oh. play it cool. Do they cheer? Do they cheer? Not really. Okay. There's a few claps, but they're pre- pretty cool customers. Oh, wow. That's interesting, oh. isn't it? Oh, my god! Actually, the other one was um, Aaron Vandenberg getting back out on the field, which was so lovely. I mean, it was a pretty boring game to watch, but that moment, <laughs> that moment was lovely. My highlight of all of them, even though I thought it was an extraordinary round and I could have picked any of those ones, was there was a moment where Cam Rayner um, for Brisbane sprayed a goal and it would have been a match winner. And then we saw Chris Fagan mm. put his arm around Cam Rayner and take him off the fi- Like at the end of the game, he put his arm around him. And I thought that's the kind of messaging that we just don't see very often. And I thought it was fantastic. And then I heard Fagan um, in the, uh, the days after saying, we haven't actually practiced what you do in those really full on last moments of a, like a, potential match winning close game um situation and I thought gosh that's so measured um and I thought it was lovely leadership because just in that moment um he supported his player but he also said to his all of the supporters said no I'm we're right we're okay here and I thought it was a really lovely moment and again I just thought Chris Fagan brings something really extraordinary to this game and um I felt quite thrilled for Brisbane supporters. One thing that we have neglected to mention, actually, which I thought was also a beautiful moment, was Josh Jenkins after the siren in the showdown, (laughs) who was asked uh, if he believed that that final goal was a goal. And he said, no, I didn't think it was. My grandma (laughs) raised me not to tell fibs. And so I'm not going to tell fibs. I think it was a behind. And if you haven't done so, Google the story of who his his grandma is or who he calls grandma. Um, It's an amazing very touching story about how he was raised and who that woman is and what she means to him. Mm, that and was I extraordinary. Did love the um, Magpies banner oh. that referenced the, <laughs> that had a coded message about um, that goal last week, the Jack Higgins goal. In the Magpies fly north with fans in tow, no matter the city where the greatest show. It had little uh, some of the letters <laughs> highlighted to say um, it said it was a throw. <laughs> <laughs> It raises the question of whether they could do some banners in invisible ink and it only becomes um, Lemon visible. Juice. Yeah, only becomes visible like if the, under the lights of the MCG or something. Could I we love work that on they that? spelt it properly too. Hilarious. Um, Carlton managed to still lose in some pretty amazing circumstances when they were playing a team that was shy two players for at least 20 minutes, which I have to say from a PR perspective, not that I'm a PR person, but just that, you know, there's been a lot of focus on what happened with Frio and West Coast, and that's probably a good um, smokescreen for Carlton because I reckon they would have been in crisis meetings and also third the third quarter of the St Kilda game. I think the other thing is, 
and I've learnt this from being at Richmond, is that while the team's not doing well, the whole club suffers. So their membership department will be copying it. And these are young kids on the phones talking to members, talking to disgruntled supporters. You know, it's actually quite a tough thing for the people who work at the club as well to go through. And I think Richmond's been through that and now reaping the rewards of a hard, you know, slog. I just feel for them completely. Yeah, it's a real tough one, isn't it? The showdown was amazing again, but when when teams from the same state play each other, sometimes it's called a showdown and sometimes <laughs> it's called, Lucy, a der- der- derby or a derby. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going with either. We yeah. still can't work We're it out. We're just going to call it showdown. We're being open-minded. <laughs> Even if it's in the, the West. Western, the Western showdown. showdown and the South Australian showdown. <laughs> We're too scared to go there now because we don't know how to say it. Okay, we are going to do quite a specific melee, pointed melee today. Um, We're going to roll up our sleeves, as we do, and there's only two topics that we're going to try and tackle because um, the AFLW fixture um, conversation has been a huge one and we have listened to our sanctimers who've been getting in contact and saying we can't wait to hear what you have to say. So we can only let you down from this point, I fear. (laughs) Um, uh, we're going to try and just have a conversation about it. But to kick it off, I thought that it might be worthwhile just to talk about the anatomy of the story of the fixturing for AFLW Season 3, which is going to happen next year, 2019. Um, on the 11th of June this year, Tom Morris did report on that Fox Footy um, women's football show um, that it was looking like very likely that there was going to be two conferences of five and that um, there would be – he was reporting at that time a six-game um, season but then with finals, which would put it out to eight weeks. Um, we talked about it on a podcast that we called um, – get off the fence um, and you guys let us know at that time that it wasn't something that you wanted to see happen. It is my understanding that about six or seven weeks ago, um, a bunch of AFLW players did go and meet at the AFL and sit with um, some of the executives there and were, I want to say, consulted or pitched to that this was a potential fixturing result for for the season going forward. It is also my understanding that the players at that time were really vocal and said that that's not something that they wanted to work towards. Um, Then, of course, Eliza Sewell put out um, an article in the Herald Sun last week, which was um, kind of further to that conversation, saying that this looks like it's going to be the fixture. And for the first time, I think, I can't remember a time when we've seen the players all really get behind something and use their platform so vocally and um, across all teams. And I think led by Daisy, who was really strong on it um, on a radio station in Melbourne called SEN, where she said, I categorically do not like this. And just some backstory with that, Daisy's not played VFL Mm. this year to save herself for the AFLW season three. And I think Karen Paxman, same. There's probably a couple others. Um, so I guess when you're looking at um, what is their career, footballing career, that the concept of only playing um, a handful of games and not playing every team once um, is probably what's got them so fired up because it's such a huge investment. Um, so we um, all have our own thoughts. Who would like to, Kate? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to say a little bit about it. I mean, and I want to talk about the question of investment, what the players have invested. Um, and so so essentially since this story, um, I, I was going to say broke, which is not quite right as you say, because it's been around for a, while, a little while. But um, since last week, I got in touch with a few players and um, had a chat to them about what it is that they understood the next 12 months would involve. And... Um, what I wanted to say was that um, many women who know that they will play already in AFLW Season 3 have signed up to an agreement of sorts with clubs, and that's what I wanted to talk about. So, um, And I've seen a few of these these contracts that the players have got. So basically the players have had what's called a kind of contract offer. And what it says is that the particular club, whoever that club might be, offers to list the player in 2019 the player accepts that offer and that the player then agrees to enter into what will be a more kind of detailed and extensive 
playing agreement um, down the track. And the details of that agreement will be as agreed between AFLW and the AFL Players Association. So essentially, it's a contract to have a contract. Um, But what's interesting is that this contract offer that many of the players have already signed says nothing about how much exactly they will be paid, the length of the season or the length of the time commitment required, either in terms of weeks or hours. Um, And it also has a few grounds upon which the club can terminate this offer, four grounds in, in fact, and then two grounds upon which the player can terminate the offer. And I raise this for a couple of reasons. Um, I don't. I, I know people might contact us and ask if I have a legal view on whether that contract is valid, given that it's a kind of contract without really any detail. But I want to. I don't want to express any view up, upon that. I, I mention it for two other reasons, and the main one is that many of these women have signed up um, to uh, or committed to something that is, as of yet, a complete unknown, and they've done it in good faith. And because they believe in this competition and they want to be a part of it. And many of those women will have already started planning their lives around this competition, whatever it might look like. They don't know what it might look like, but they will have done things like made practical plans, plans to move into state, planned out well in advance to take leave, often unpaid leave from their full-time jobs. And So if not as a matter of law, I think at least as a matter of principle, the AFL owes these women something in return and they owe them certainty um, at the very least and the AFL hasn't been able to give them that. We heard in the last couple of days that the AFLW won't decide until I think October what Mm -hmm. the exact parameters of the competition will be Mm -hmm. next year. And so I'm flabbergasted that these women can sign on the dotted line in April uh, essentially kind of blank check about what they're what they're signing up for and that they have to wait at least six more months to know what it is that they've signed up to. I can't think of any other contractual scenario that's that one-sided and I think the AFL owes these women some explanations. Lucy? Um, that's, they're all very good points, Kate, and I think it also dovetails into how we, you know, there are so many people who push back and say, how is this competition going to pay for itself? And we're talking about like broadcasting is on one side of it, sponsorships on the other. And when we spoke to Brie Brock a few weeks ago, one of the things she raised is how difficult it is as a club to try and um, get sponsors on board because what are you asking them to sign up to at the moment? It's basically fresh air. Yeah, I was mm. just I was just going to say the same thing. I think we, the AFL owes it to clubs who have also pitched to have a women's team. I mean, a lot goes into those pitches, a lot goes into the planning, going out to sponsors. I mean, there's so much behind getting a women's team up. And you think about the football landscape in October, it's the end of the men's season. Everyone's exhausted. Mm. People who are, people go away. It's hard to get an answer on anything. And the competition starts in January. And the draft. So and they're training are, in November. Yeah, so where are decisions yep. expected to be made, be made for commercial realities, you know? The other thing I think is, you know, when you broaden it out, you there's an issue with how we perceive the AFLW as being valued. And the AFL tells us that the AFLW competition is a priority, but their actions don't necessarily back that up. And I think, you know, there's under, there's an understanding that this is a new competition. So, you know, people are willing to go along with things and some uncertainty and some differences and some changes um, because there's that understanding that, okay, well, you know, we're not fully fledged, we're, we're on our way. So, you know, yes, we'll, you know, happy to... Pay for less, uh, play for less money, and and those sorts of things. But overwhelmingly, there's this expectation that when you're adding in two new teams, that the competition's going to expand, not to be limited. And and to limit it actually sends a message, I think, is that it's not valued. And the problem with that is that when we send that message out, what it's actually saying is that we don't value women's sport in the same way that we value men's sport and that enables a whole other raft of disrespect and worse that comes out and and so we can't just look at it in a bubble it does spill out into society it's a lack of strong leadership brings the haters to the yard that's what I always think and I think that when I watch Adam Goods talking about the booing incident that in unless you get ahead of it Mm. you're naive Mm. you're getting if you're getting paid to be a leader in this space then this is 
part of your job. This is what comes with it. So as soon as you bat it up and say this is negotiable, then that's when the haters jump Mm. on and I don't know how you attract people to want to be involved in that environment if that's the case. I think um, the issue of messaging, I'm going to be sort of banging on about that a bit today, but um, (laughs) as as I want. Um, But, you know, we we felt right from the beginning that there was a sense that things were rushed right from the beginning um, of that very first competition. But there is no way that we expected two years later things like fixturing and, you know, how uh, ground availability, even, you know, roughly when the game, the, the fixture, the schedule would be set, that these would still be in question. And it does point to this notion that there do, it doesn't seem to be any long-term vision or even short-term. Let's, we're talking about literally year to year at the moment. But there's, there's, the addition of two teams is not a surprise to anybody. And in 2020, we've got another four. So... How this is being done on the run in this way, it really does reinforce that idea that this is not a priority for the AFL and that that it continues to be the secondary or even tertiary kind of concern for um, sport. Um, What's your thinking on when they talk about... There's this this thing that keeps getting brought up, mostly by Gil, where Mm. he talks about... the. For clean air, like yeah, clear air, know. clear clear air for it to be played. I'm confused by that because they still managed to jam in AFLX. Yeah. And I actually think that, and I've seen this on Twitter a little bit, which isn't really saying much, but um, that there's an assumption or there's kind of a feeling around it that this is a novelty competition. And mm. I'm not saying in the same way that Daisy said it was a, a gimmicky whatever, but I think that the that the AFL see it as a as a side project, a yes, side novelty, absolutely. you know, round robin that's kind of like AFLX. And I believe that that's where it sits. It, mm. I believe now that AFLW sits at the AFL, not in football, no. but in like fan Six engagement degree. or like yeah. audience development or something like that, which as a woman, mm. I go, oh, being my gender is not a novelty. No. You know, you wake up with it every day. And they're not allowing the players or the game to evolve naturally at all, which is something that the obviously the men's game was able to do. The constant interference is absolutely restricting their ability to become truly elite as sportswomen. And I think, you know, we, t- we talk about how or the AFL is talking about bringing in rule changes to try and make the game more attractive, in quotes, and that they're clearly very concerned about clear air and how you actually promote it. I think the strongest thing that you could do is to let them play more games because when, you know, we saw it last year that the more that these women get to play together and play as a team, the standard improves and you cannot expect people to be playing their best football if they only play a couple of games together. Yeah, if there'd been two extra games last year, Collingwood probably would have played finals. Yeah. You know, it changes, completely changes the competition manner. And I think there's a broader conversation here too, if possible, um, around diversity in general um, and the way the AFL looks at it. And, you know, as a layman, as a laywoman, I could just see a general trend towards consolidating things and minimising things, even dismantling a multicultural round, uh, those things are symbolic and shortening the women's season is also symbolic and it just, I don't know, doesn't feel good. You feel like those things would would eventually kind of um, play themselves out once you have equity and equality, but if you going to dismantle them before that's happened, that defeats exactly. the entire purpose yeah, you and think undoes the, all the great work. You think it's the stepping stone to more, yeah. not, to, not to less. No. Also, AFLW comes before AFLX in the alphabet. So. <laughs> oh, most importantly. So, I mean, that, that kind of means that it should get priority, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's how it works. Yeah, less clowns. When we, um, something that I, I really enjoyed hearing this week was um, Patrick Hill, who um, spoke before um, the VFLW game last week. And I just want to read you a quote from Patrick. He said, if you invest in a women's program and you don't treat it equally and you don't treat it with respect, you're not closing the gender gap, you're highlighting it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good point because we see how um, how much men's sport is valued. And so you're right, Rana, it does send a message, um, whether you like it or not, it's it's kind of a political statement Mm. if you're going to try and make it shorter and make it take up just a tiny, tiny corner of grass. And it's no surprise too that Kate O'Halloran in The Guardian um, talked about, she referenced Billie Jean King and the the breakaway, the WTA, that there's going to be talk and rumblings about 
you know, that the AFL maybe isn't ready for this. They, maybe they're not in the best position to handle this. Now, that is pretty drastic stuff, but it did change the conversation pretty quickly, the messaging coming out of the AFL, because there was so much unhappiness. So, Well, it's interesting. We spoke at the um, Darabin Falcons Hawthorne um, VFLW game this week, and Felicity Race, who, you know, member of the Outer Sanctum, she was there and she said um, it almost makes you wonder whether the VFLW becomes the premier competition and we do have Northern Territory Thunder playing in that competition. If we could broaden that out and make that a national competition, then it runs concurrently with the men's game and people Mm. still turn up Mm. and it's still doing its thing and you get to play an entire season and, you know, it's real. Mm. Um, (laughs) The thing that I that I've been wowed by is how vocal the supporters have been. That it is that when um, Nicole Livingston talked about this in the first instance, she said she's going to consult with the players and with the media and with the fans. So this is our opportunity as fans to have our, to say, have our say. And I've been really impressed with how everyone has really stepped up their game. And I know Danae, I think, from Chicks Talking Footy might have started a... Petition, Petition yeah, which yeah. we've seen going around. There's been articles. I know Cheryl, who's a huge advocate, has been sending messages to clubs and to sponsors and trying to drum up um, a bit of business there. And we see you and we hear you, Cheryl. There's been um, people have been um, getting really vocal on Twitter and sending emails. And I think that's really impressive. But I think the thing that could really change the face of this is that if you like the AFLW, if it means something to you. And I know eyes on televisions are really important, but when that se- when the season starts, we need to turn up. Yeah. We need to turn up. We need it to if we could create a lockout situation at every single game, that would silence the haters. And I think that as fans of this game, that's the one thing that we can really do because you think about the players, I think about people coming back who've done if you've done an ACL and you're out for an entire year there's a chance you're going to miss two seasons now Mm. because you're not going to have enough time to get back in one year so we may not see Isabel Huntington or Or we may not see Mel Hickey yeah Yeah. and that would be such a loss for the competition it doesn't Mm. give them enough time to come back you think about the rehab that those people are doing teaching themselves how to run again the least we can do is turn up Mm -hmm. and be there at every single game you can possibly get to turn up take your family grab a friend let's make this like let's really put our impossible um, to ignore yeah make it, make impossible. it impossible to ignore it's better than rallying it's better than turning up and marching we need to turn up and we need to demonstrate that we would be absolutely fine to pay a gate fee and that we want this Absolutely. And that's, you know, there are two things I'd like to put on the agenda. Um, One is that I really think that we should be paying for these games because to not pay for them sends a message that we don't value them. Now, we pay to go and see a man's VFLW game. Mm -hmm. uh, VFL game. game. (laughs) I'm all about the W. Um, So just to put this in perspective, I pay every time I go and watch my son play his junior club basketball game and so does everybody else that's a spectator. So if I'm going to pay... How much do you pay? I pay $2.50 and I watch... I've That's from sort of under nines basketball. Wow. Per person, right? Per so person, the whole family per goes, spectator. Right? Absolutely. Is so, that in Victorian dollars? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's in Derby dollars. Now... <laughs> So, and I want I want that put on the agenda because I think it would also help with ticketing and with lockouts and with people knowing you know who's going to turn up. Might be able to get some lights out of them too. Mm. The second thing I want to put on the agenda, and this is probably not for you guys, it's probably outside of your remit. Maybe not you, Rana. I don't know. <laughs> She's here. Make a request. But I think you know when the AFL is talking about uh, uh, you know to to pay them their dues. The reason that they're they're looking at all of this is that they want this competition to be a success. I think the best way you can do that is just give all the clubs that want a license a license because we know how parochial people are about their club. Mm. And at the moment we're asking people to become really invested in a competition where you might not have a team. And for people like us or people who are really passionate about women's football and women's sport, yes, you're going to jump in and you might, you know, you might pay a membership to another club. But the best way to get buy-in from a huge number of people is to just make those clubs 
Like, let them have their license too. Until yeah. you just said that then, I was like, oh, yeah, my team doesn't have a mm. – yeah. I don't have a team. Imagine mm. how I would be feeling – I mean, we started this goddamn podcast. There are 100,000 Richmond members. Absolutely. So when Richmond has a team in the competition, they're going to turn up. They will absolutely Not all of them. Up. No. But, but a lot of them will. And the thing is we know from research that it's a different market. There is a whole other audience that tunes into AFLW. So mm. I don't really get what the fear factor is here. They could really grow don't. that membership. Absolutely. That's what could happen. That's crazy that they, that they would ignore that, that the AFL doesn't embrace that as an opportunity. So who here thinks that the story has found momentum again now because, and I, I'm totally, I'm not saying that, I'm, I'm accepting that Eliza Saul had the story and she wrote the story. We too had the story. We went with it in June, um, but we don't, you know, have a huge readership. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you think that this story is out there in part to try and garner what the public think? Or do you have any suspicions that it might be out there to try and garner um, a commercial um, commercial interest from broadcasters. Do you think the story is out there just because Eliza just was like, well, it's time to write the story because the competition committee's meeting. She's a huge advocate and a massive fan mm. of women's footy. I see her at the footy all the time mm. and she's a huge supporter and I thought she did a great job of it as well, to be honest, and I know she copped a bit of flack. But do you think do you think that the the flow-on effects from this will help garner commercial sponsors or or make the broadcasters come out of the woodwork? I don't think this is a plan by the AFL. No. I mean, I think this has backfired on them in the same way that the game adjustments did and the trialling at the middle of the, you know, the end of the season while it was still a live season. I don't think this has been a planned thing at all. And I think that they're just, what they've done consistently for three years is, is come to it when they finally got to it and they have not resourced it properly. There's, you know, from what I understand, Nicole Livingston and two staff working on this. This is starting a, a competition that's still very much in its infancy mm. and the resources haven't been put there. So it's backfired fully. Uh, I have a cynical take, which will surprise no one. But l- before I say that, let me say this, that... We could sit around and speculate as much as we want about what the AFL's intentions might be, but we just don't know. And that's part of the problem, that the AFL hasn't been very transparent about what it is that they're doing. And 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 if they are disorganised, which it looks like they are, um, you know, they, they need to be more transparent about that, I think. They need to say, look, we're, we're not sure what we're doing. We're not sure what the vision is. We're trying to work it out. And I know that that's a Isn't that very what they unlikely... kind of have said, though? I think they have said that. Well, I don't know. I mean, no. I, there's, there's an attempt to make it look like it's under control, but I don't think it is but this is my cynical take my which you know him because I said this to you on the weekend Uh, you know in politics uh, political parties often float an idea like say for a tax cut or something like that to and it's a worst case scenario it sounds disastrous and then what happens is they often wind it back so they say maybe we're going to cut the corporate tax rate by five percent and everybody's up in arms and then as it turns out they might say, okay, well, look, we took on board public mm. feedback. We're going to cut it by only 3%. Mm. And members of the public then feel like they've had a win yeah. um, and it, and it doesn't sound so bad. And my cynical take is that that's what was going on, that the AFL perhaps floated this idea to see what, what the reaction was and then they might, instead of having, you know, six games plus a couple of finals, they might push it out to seven and everybody feels like they achieve something yeah. by, by speaking up. Can I just well, ask, if you look at um, yeah, Eliza Sewell wrote another article um, that came out last night that said um, they're now looking at a seven-round home and away season plus two weeks of finals um, and wrote in here, and I quote, but it's understood the league has softened on its original model um, and that kind of backs up what you were saying. But again, like that's not everybody playing everybody once. Just so you know, um, Kate just did like a cynical eye face, <laughs> like a I told you so yeah. nod, eye yeah. roll, we hands fell in the for air it. thing. I know. She's so like that, Nicole. I just I just feel like the AFL is so feels like they're so out of touch and I think many people make that claim against them. So these kinds of if these are thought bubbles to test it that's doing nothing to redress that image and mm. they do mm. have a PR problem at the moment mm. and play uh, fans do feel like they do not reflect their voice. So I would say if they are doing this as a cynical ploy to get in something, a compromise, it's not working. It's going to have much greater implications than just sliding through a new version of this competition. 
We may have to park this issue and come back to it. We may. We will. We are. We're parking it. Reverse parking it with a trailer because we're women and we can. So um, we will come back to this. But can I just say the people on the competition committee, I trust them. I think they're good people. They're good voices. And, you know, they've been vocal as well over time and they know what they're talking about. So um, I am speaking to all of you (laughs) via this podcast. There was another massive issue that happened um, this week and uh, it was during the Frio West Coast game. We hate seeing people go off injured in any capacity, but off an off-the-ball incident that sees an, a player um, have to have his whole mouth rearranged and dental work and stuff is just horrific to watch. Um, we have a lot of opinions on this one. <laughs> we have a lot of opinions on this. I'm going to throw a cat amongst the pigeon and start with this. Uh, were you guys watching the game in real time when it happened? That's yes. a nod. Everyone's nodding except for Rana who was really busy. Mm. So when Adam Simpson put Andrew Gaff back on the ground after it had happened, I thought that that lacked a bit of now and a bit of leadership because I think it changed the dynamic of the game and what I, I know that we're going to talk about red carding and people have been saying that there's an opportunity here and you know for the first time in my life I agreed with Chris Judd on Footy Classified <laughs> this week when he was saying you know it might only happen once a season or once every three seasons but there, sometimes there is a case for a red card or a sin bin situation. Uh, the umpire didn't see it and so that makes it really challenging um, because, and some of the people at the game didn't see it. All they saw was the aftermath. And um, and I thought, I know having spoken to Nathan Burke on ABC Grandstand, he's been telling me that when people get reported, it's really just a mime. It's like when you ask for the waiter to bring the bill, you know, that hand in mm. the air signing the thing. It's like that when someone gets reported on the field because everything gets picked up by the match review Um, process anyway so when it's off the ball you can't see an umpire taking someone's number and doing the mime of you're in trouble and you're going to go to Mr P's office so that's when things can get pretty heated because um, it's kind of left to the ecology of the of the team and of the ground and so I'm not being critical of Adam Simpson necessarily but I just think that putting Gaff looked really distraught Mm. in addition um to the rest of the team. And I thought it changed the temperature of the game. Every time he went back on, I thought anything could happen here. Who do you, Kate, do you believe that he should have gone back on the ground? Or? Yeah, I do. What? I, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I look, watching it at the time, I felt very uncomfortable like most people because I felt like it was like a, you know, explosive situation and almost I almost wanted to reach for the rule book in all seriousness because I thought what are the rules about calling a game off? How can the umpires call this game off? And I I felt like it was almost at the point where they were going to have to consider doing that because you know, it just felt like it could it could really um, get much worse, much more quickly. But a lot of commentators were saying, a lot of the commentators were raising questions about Simpson putting Gaff back on, and I didn't agree with them for two main reasons. The first one is that it sort of implied that retribution was going to be inevitable um, from from the Fremantle players, and I think that doesn't say very much about what we expect of men in that situation. Um, or rather, it says that we expect something from them. We expect only one thing from them, which is that they'll seek vengeance um, when somebody that they on their team is hurt. And I know that those men may feel angry, um, but they have just as much responsibility to control themselves as Gaff had responsibility to not injure Brayshaw in the first place. And I think when the commentators kept saying, oh, you know, Simpson shouldn't put Gaff back on here, it shifted responsibility from the Fremantle players who might seek to retaliate to Gaff himself and to Simpson. And I know this might sound like a bit of a stretch to some people, but in a related sense, it's kind of a bit like victim blaming that we hear in other contexts. Um, So yes, Gaff was the initial perpetrator of, um, you know, against Brayshaw, but in the moments after he came back on, he was also then at that stage a potential victim of, of, 
a violent retribution. And the onus shouldn't be on him to absent himself from that space in order to avoid being hurt. And it's not the onus is also not on um, Simpson to to protect him or prevent him, just as the onus is not on women to avoid walking through parks at night or um, avoiding drinking alcohol or wearing short skirts. And I know that might sound Mm. a stretch, but Mm. to me, Mm. the commentators talking about it in those terms really muddies the water about how we understand choice and agency. The choice to be violent is always one of the perpetrators alone and um, I didn't like that message. Lucy? I'm going to disagree with you, Doc, which we don't do very often. (laughs) Um, Firstly, I don't think Gaff looked like he was in any emotional or um, in any state to go back on because we know that this game is played at high speed in 360 degrees and I actually think there was a duty of care to keep him off because I don't think he was in the right state of mind to go back on. But I think that's a different point yeah. to whether or no, not I Simpson agree. should I'm have... I'm now going to get yeah. into your other point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to hear from the because second think... speaker of the No, I, I just... when mum and dad fight. <laughs> mum and dad aren't really fighting, but I, I just want to explore. I, I don't think... I. Th- I get where you're coming from, Kate. I really do. I just don't think we're at that point to be able to trust that that will happen. So Michael Johnson was fined $2,000 for his bump on Gaff when Gaff went back on. Um, That was deemed careless conduct and low impact to his head. Now, in any other week, we would be discussing that sanction because I don't understand how that was ruled as careless conduct. Um, I think there was a degree of intention. Um, just from what I saw, it looked more intentional than careless. And I think it's been graded the way it is to not start another fire. There was a discussion on Footy Classified um, about this idea of putting people back on. And something that Matthew Lloyd said, and I'm going to quote him here, he said, he he basically said that Gaff would have wanted to go back on. And his quote is that Gaff may feel like it's quite cowardly from his perspective if he was to sit on the bench for the rest of the game and not face the Frio Dockers. They then raised with Matthew Lloyd his last game where he had injured Brad Sewell and he had to go back on. And he, I'm quoting him again here and he says, you have to put your head over the ball and cop whatever comes your way for what went on beforehand. So... Mm. Both of those comments I found deeply problematic because I think it goes back to this notion of what is bravery, what is standing up, what is being tough, what is, your, what is the expectation and what, is, what forms of masculinity are we actually calling on and, and I guess um, prioritising in that situation. And I fear that it's it's one that is actually about violent retaliation is okay in some in some instances. I'm not sure we're in disagreement, Lucy, by no, the way. But no. <laughs> well, just to add to that, I think the other reason why I felt like Gaff shouldn't have gone back on is that the crowd, the West Coast crowd was super into it and cheering and applauding. And I just don't think that, that adds anything. In fact, it sends the wrong message in my mind. And I just would have liked for them to have seen, all right, he did that. However good a guy he is, he doesn't go back on. Yeah, the messaging thing is where I sort of keep coming back to is, you know, I keep thinking about young people and how kids and young adults are supposed to process this mixed message about violence on show right now and how that there is this notion of a hierarchy of acceptable and abhorrent violence and that there's quite a range there and it seems to be constantly shifting. But in a week when the age's top four stories featured allegations of women dying at the hands of their male partners, we also saw revelations that a man who had been jailed for a coward punch assault that took another young man's life, was afforded day release to play and train in the local footy competition um, without the, the other players or opponents or the club seeming to know the details of his transgression. And we saw North defender Shannon Grant's jail sentence for assaulting his former partner reduced to a two-year community corrections order despite the court hearing that Grant was facing a new charge relating to alleged offending against his ex-partner. And then before the Hawthorne-Essendon match, um, a game that had very high stakes already, both clubs' finals hopes very much on the line. On the scoreboards, for those waiting in the queue, there was vision of the 2004 line in the sand match and with gushing commentary and atmospheric music all intended, I guess, 
to rev up the already heightened tension. And, you know, for those who don't know, the line in the sand match was about the story that Dermot Brereton supposedly addressed a struggling Hawthorne team before the match back in 2004 um, to remind them to wave the team flag and not to be intimidated by the Bombers' physical game. Um, the details are quite sketchy, but he told the players that they needed to draw a sand in the line, a line in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> Drawing sand in the line is really hard. Um, and the melee during that match that followed was long and ugly and 18 players faced charges and, you know, five of them were suspended for an average of three weeks. And this is back when sanctions were still pretty soft. So, um, you know, and, and here's the AFL and the MCG 14 years later, treating it like Rocky running up the Philadelphia Museum mm. steps. And I just think, you know showcasing this sense of violence like it's something to admire glorifying it you know Hawthorne lost that game for a start so not only is it immoral it's also counterproductive um and I just think it comes back to this notion of these levels of of violence and I think we really need to look at all the kinds of punches and the small hits outside of the game I think you're completely right and the AFL have not cracked down this season on some punches so what I kept coming back to is that there was a defense that he was trying to punch him in the chest Mm. now I would not be okay if my son was punched in the chest at that velocity or ferocity (laughs) is that the word Mm. um that that dislodged his teeth or his lip. I don't see why, like, if, if that had caught him on the windpipe, are we talking about something even worse? You know, I don't understand why punches are allowed in the game, but I have to really admit to something is that I, this has really highlighted for me that there is a laws of the jungle that I do not understand. Mm. I do not understand the laws of retribution, the laws of sticking up for a teammate. I don't, I can see it and I can see that it's part of this game and I can hear it because of, let's, and to quote Spud Frawley again, the current former players talk about it a lot, all of the commentators that we see out there. And, you know, um, um, David King um, was really strong on it and Matthew Lloyd also similar. They've been conditioned to believe that there is a, a rightful and justified uh, justified retribution element to this game and even watching it with my husband he he acknowledged that well that guy if he goes back on won't come off unless he comes off in a stretch on a stretcher and I'm like why is that okay I'm not I don't feel okay with that mm-hmm. and but there's this real acceptance that it's part of the game and I don't understand it and yesterday I did some poking around asking about the women's game and whether this occurs in the women's game and the feedback that I kind of got was that it's really frowned upon if anyone purposely hurts another player in the women's game and that they don't get physical as much as they get verbal and part of that I wondered is because if if you get injured or you punch someone in the face they probably have to go to work the next day where they're a teacher Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. a doctor or a lawyer or a gardener and they need to be able to to go and do their job. So I was thinking, how do we change this behaviour? And one thing that I kept coming back to is that if you are out suspended, you might get a fine. So you get a fine that you can pay because you get paid really handsomely. Um, You might not be able to play, which is, you know, tantamount to, you know, just the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you. But you're still getting paid. You still get to be around the footy club. Everyone will still get around him, you know, all mm, that kind of stuff. Mm. I'm like, what happens if they don't pay the players when they get suspended? They have to pay a, fa- a fine. They also then don't get paid for that. They still have to do training. But what happens if we then put them in a jobs for the jobs for the suspended? What happens if they have to go to an, accountancy, an accountancy firm and they have to f- do some filing? Mm, you know, mm. what happens if they have to go and wash cars or Come get an actual job? <laughs> exactly. Yes. No, but something outside of football yeah, that yeah. demonstrates that in the real world, if someone disses one of our workmates, we don't square up. Okay. Mm. It's interesting. Like, I actually think we're all on the same uh-huh. page because what we're talking about is the, nat- the this attempt in the commentary to naturalise violence and to essentialise violence and to describe it as like a core part of men's behaviour, which it's not and it needn't be. I just want to say one sort of final thing, coming back to the, the question of um, obligation. Um and deterrence. So there's two pieces that have come out that have been written today about the GAF incident. One of them is by Rob Starry, who's written a piece for The Australian. And Rob Starry is a very well-known high-profile criminal lawyer in Victoria. And the other one is a piece by Liam Elphick, who's a friend of the podcast, um, written for The Conversation. Um, Both of them have 
talked about the fact that the police have uh, an opportunity here to consider charging GAF and the West Australian police have said that they're looking into it. Um, and I think both Rob Starry and Liam Elphick take a similar view, which is that if the police stepped in and, and drew, you know, a line in the sand, to come back to that um, metaphor, Nick, um, that would be a very important step in in, in trying to deter future uh, on-field violence. Um, and interestingly, Rob Starry says, you know, a crime is a crime wherever it takes place. He says that the AFL has failed in its duty to improve sufficient sanctions to quell this sort of behaviour. It missed an opportunity to condemn this violence in the Barry Hall-Brent Staker incident in 20, uh, 2008. Hall's penalty was inadequate. Perhaps it could use the GAF incident as a line in the sand. And what he's talking about there, and Liam Elphick has made the same point, is that also the AFL could consider introducing a red card to deter players even more. Because, mm. I mean, there's no doubt that GAF is remorseful very um, yes but there isn't enough of a deterrent in the heat uh, of the in, moment in in the yeah. game rana one final one for you one more thing is just looking back to the ali fahua incident last year i mean he lost his job in the end uh, he had priors um, You're talking about an AFL executive who was yeah. playing football on the weekend and coward punched yes. someone behind play. Yes, and that was a retaliation of something that happened to his teammate. So, mm. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And he was suspended for life. Yes. And I know he had priors, but yeah. yeah. But then you look at what's happening in the outer and there's punches being thrown mm. by people who are watching this game who idolise these people and we go, we throw our hands up in the air and we, we say to those people, you can't come back in and be a part of this game. Lucy? I think that this is a really, really interesting case for us to really think about um, and think about what it means going forward because the most disturbing part of it is that it's a player who had no record and who stated that he wasn't frustrated. So I think that gives us even more pause for thought and to think about what needs to happen from a systemic point of view going forward to ensure this doesn't ever happen again. And I don't think there's any accident that, as Titus O'Reilly tweeted, the gaff got more weeks than the entire AFLW season. Okay, I'm going to wrap this chat up here, but I'm very pleased to say that we have got a really beautiful interview for you today about the BCNA field of women and what it means to one particular football player. Lucy Milkaratis is vice-captain of the Donvale Football Club senior women's team. She also works full-time and this year became a volunteer with the BCNA, which is the Breast Cancer Network of Australia. You would know them from their pink lady. We're going to see her on Sunday on the field at the MCG. Four years ago, Lucy's world was rocked when she was diagnosed with breast cancer at only 32. Lucy, welcome to the Outer Sanctum. Thank you. Can I ask you, um, we'll get into the football stuff um, but after you had gone through cancer, why is it that you wanted to uh, offer your services to the BCNA? Uh, yeah, look, I was pretty interested in um, being a volunteer and helping younger women go through the journey that I went through. And I guess when I get, went through it, there was um, there was a lot of support, but I guess not as focused on young women's cancer as I thought there should be. So I guess that's why I volunteered with the BCNA, just to help them with their young women's program and get that up and going a little bit more, just to provide those young women a bit more support. Lucy, you have a big game this weekend. So you're playing um, for Don Vale and you've got a big clash, top of the table clash this week. Has football always been part of your life? Yeah, it has. Look, I've grown up in a football mad family. We're mad along supporters. Um, my brother was quite a good footballer and um, when I was a really young girl, I, I wanted to play footy just like my brother. And um, unfortunately, back then, I'm 36 now. So back then, there was just not the opportunity there is now. Um, so I went off and played some other sports and came back to football a few years ago. So it always has been a massive part of my family. I played at high school and sport's a huge part. Um, but now the progression of AFL football for women has absolutely exploded, which is a great thing. Um, so, yeah, it's always been a huge part of my life, whether it be playing, watching, supporting. So were you playing when you got your diagnosis? No, I wasn't. Okay. So funny enough, the, the story is I, I sort of retired from Big V Basketball the year before um, and that's when we all sort of got word that the AFL Women's was coming hard and fast. Um, so I sort of retired from Big V and thought maybe I'll have another crack at footy and, and maybe there's an opportunity there for me to play AFL. Um, that pre-season I was going to go and try out with Darabin at the time um, that's when I got my diagnosis in January, so that never went eventuated. So I I was diagnosed first. Yep. And what were the early signs that you needed to go and see a doctor, or what made you query what was happening? Yeah, so I found a lump 
So um, in the shower, I was actually away on an overseas holiday in America. I'd just been to Disneyland, got home. I got home back to the hotel and just had a shower and um, noticed that there was a lump. There was something abnormal and I just knew straight away it was um, it was a lump that it felt like a pebble. And so straight away I knew there was something wrong. So when I got home, I went straight to the GP and it, it happened really, really fast. What's that like to go from, I'm just going to go to the GP, like you drive to the GP that morning and you don't necessarily have cancer and then you leave that office and you probably do. Yeah. So look, taking myself back to that point, it was, it was obviously pretty horrific for not in myself, but my family. So um, it was, it was difficult because I sort of, as soon as I felt that lump, I knew. So it wasn't like, I think I'd already prepared myself for the diagnosis. Um, I just felt in myself there was something wrong and um, I'd already prepared for that for that diagnosis. I don't really know how to explain it, but I just, I guess I thought the worst straight away. So when the diagnosis came through, um, it, it, it sort of, it was, I'm not going to say it was easy, but I was already sort of prepared. And I guess that what wasn't prepared was my family. Um, they were very positive and just no one thought that it was ever going to happen because I was young and, and healthy. But um, that was probably the hardest part was I'd already sort of got my head around it, but they sort of hadn't. Um, so that was the toughest part. What was your experience of the support services that were available for especially being a younger woman um, with a breast cancer diagnosis at that point? Look, the support, the, the support that I had, not only from the BCNA with providing um, support with breast care nurses, and I had a terrific one at Ringwood Private, um, but just the support from the cancer team that I had at the hospital was amazing. Um, the surgeons I had, the oncologists I have, um, the care couldn't have been better. Um, they made me feel comfortable the whole way through. They communicated the whole way through. Um, BCNA were on the phone um, giving me contacts if I needed some help. So the support was great. It was just more that it happened so quickly. You, I just didn't know what strings to pull, I guess, to, to get in contact with people. Mm. It was just such a fast process that you just had to do rather than think. So Looking back now, I probably should have reached out a little bit more back then um, and utilised those services, and that's what I would encourage younger girls now to do. When um, people have a diagnosis or something happens that rocks your whole family like that, a lot of the time people just start making lasagnas. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it's lasagna. Maybe it's a casserole. Tuna 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 Mornay. (laughs) What were actually things that people, like friends, that delivered to your door? What were the things that actually stand out as being super helpful? Uh, probably the, the biggest thing that was super helpful um, was two of my best friends that, that live in Barwon Heads um, came and fully cleaned my house. So um, I was obviously in hospital and uh, my partner was finding it hard to keep up with the duties and, and they just came in for a couple of days and completely cleaned the house. So that was probably one of the things out of the ordinary. Other than that, yeah, I did receive a lot of tuna mornays and, and lasagnas. <laughs> and I think I ate lasagna for a good few months after that. But um, just the support and, and flowers and cards and all that sort of stuff. So that's what gets you through when, when those people that are really important in your life stick with you in, in, that, in these tough times. So um, a casserole, even though it might not seem significant, it is a significant thing. Lucy, football such a physical game. Has your experience with cancer changed the way that you've approached sport or has it changed the way that you feel about your body and what your body's capable of? Yeah, there's a couple of, there's a couple of points in that. Um, I guess the first point is I, I, when I first decided I'd go back and play football after the, going through breast cancer and having a double mastectomy, I guess um, when, I, when I informed my mother I was going to do that, she made me go and get a clearance from the surgeon, first of all, mm-hmm. to make sure everything was okay. Um, the way I play football, the way I've played sport is I'm very white line fever. So as soon as I cross that line, nothing other than getting the ball enters my brain. Um, so no, I've given no second thought to my body. Um, and it hasn't changed my perception on how I play or how I approach sport. Um, I have had a couple of concussions this year, which is, um, that's probably affected me a lot more. Um, and the other thing is I think post-cancer, um, there are a lot of things that I used to be able to do, um, fitness wise, um, that I probably haven't got back. So that's a little bit disappointing, but I, I guess what I get out of it now is I'm fit enough to be able to play. It might not be to the ability I used to, but um, I guess it's better than nothing. Did you have surgery um, as part of your treatment? So um, I've heard people say that when they've had surgery for breast cancer that um, hanging out the washing can be a really challenging thing because of putting your hands up in the air. Do you have any um, – is there any issues with taking overhead marks for you as an ongoing 
issue? Uh, probably not um, pain-wise. I've obviously, um, whilst having the surgery, having a double vasectomy does um, uh, play with your nerves a lot. So um, I guess through my chest and some of my upper shoulders, I have no feeling. So that probably does have a bit of an impact on how I mark these days rather than opposed to when I didn't have the nerve damage. So other than that, pain-wise, I get a bit of nerve pain here and there, but really not not particular. My range of movement is still the same. Lucy, you're working for B- or a volunteer for the BCNA and it's a big game this weekend. Have you been part of the field of women before? No, I haven't. Um, the last couple of years, well, the last two years, I've sort of been playing football and, it, and unfortunately I usually play on a Saturday, but this week it's a Sunday, so I'll get to miss out again. But I have been involved in the background. But, yeah, it's um, something I'd really like to be a part of, I guess, um, the main message I want to get out today is that the field of women's not just for people that have survived breast cancer or been touched by breast cancer. It's for anyone. Um, it's for anyone to participate. Um, and it's just to show, it's just to, I guess, give awareness of how many women or men are actually affected in Australia by breast cancer every mm-hmm. year. Um, over 18,000 people get diagnosed in Australia. So it's just a, an awareness campaign that brings everyone together and provides a bit of support. You can get along to that game. It's this Sunday at the MCG and you can register to be in the field of women. Absolutely. If you want to be part of it, you need to go to the BCNA website and register there. So um, there's a fee that includes your entrance into the game. Children are free, but they also need to register. It is such a moving moment to be part of that field of women. And um, if you haven't been a part of it before, um, it's a beautiful thing to to give you time to do and just to demonstrate with your physical body um, that people really care about um, people who are going through journeys just like you have. Lucy, thank you so much for sharing your story with the Outer Sanctum today. No worries. Thank Good you luck us. at the game this thank weekend. You. Thank you. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks, Lucy. Okay, ladies. Field of Women is this Sunday at the MCG. Thank you so much, Rana, for coming. Um, It was so nice to have you. I'm sorry to wrap this up so quickly. We're going to have to get you back so we can talk more. That would be lovely. Thank you. (laughs) Um, We don't have time for final business today, Mm. ladies. Mm. It's time for us to get out of here. But um, please keep talking to us on socials. We've really appreciated hearing all of your thoughts and all of the things that we've discussed today will have ongoing ramifications and we'll be back to talk more next week. We'll speak to you then. Bye. Bye.